Hello, everyone, and welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to give insight into Major League Soccer's on-field action. I'm Joe Lowry, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jordan Angeli. What's up, Jordan? Nothing. This is... <laughs> This is the type of um, weekend I think we're all waiting for. There's so much for some of the teams on the line. We're seeing some good performances and it's starting to really feel like playoffs. So you got to love that. We're so close. We're one we week so away close. from decision day. That'll be next Sunday or this upcoming Sunday, I guess. Yeah. It's yeah. right around How the are corner. You? I'm, I'm well, thank you. I'm excited for the playoffs. We talked about that a little bit last week. We're both looking forward to that. I enjoyed watching a bunch of soccer this weekend, and I'm excited to talk about soccer with you right now. Okay, let's do it. So we've got a number of different games that we want to to get to in varying levels of depth. But the first place that we want to go is to Nashville SC. They clinched a playoff Mm. berth earlier this week after a 1-0 win over the Montreal Impact. They draw with Chicago on Saturday. We haven't talked about Nashville in a while, and we wanted to give them a little bit of love at the top of this show because they're playing decent soccer, and they're in the playoffs in their expansion season. Which is big time. There's not a lot of clubs that have done that, and I think that credit needs to go to them because of what they've done this first year. And I think there has been a lot of talk over the year, Joe, about how they were building their team and what kind of team they were going to be. But you really start to see the pieces that they built their team off of that Gary Smith and the and we talked about this right way at the beginning of the season when we talked about Gary Smith and how he likes to play soccer but you bring in two MLS veteran center backs you bring two MLS veteran holding midfielders and a good goalkeeper and I think really that's the stability of their team that box on top of the goalkeeper and it's showing with the number of shutouts they've had and just their defensive prowess throughout the season. 100%. The way that they play and the way that they are playing right now is exactly how Gary Smith wants to play, which I think Mm -hmm. is something that they should get credit for. It's something that Gary Smith Smith should get credit for. Having your players sit back in a structured 4-4-2 block for 90% of this season is what Gary Smith was always going to do, and he's done it effectively. It's difficult. It's a difficult thing in soccer to take your vision and to implement it on the soccer field. That doesn't happen easily so many coaches try that and fail and has Gary Smith done it in a way that's been flashy or even that's been remarkable this season no and is he aided by the fact that 18,000 teams make it into the playoffs yes oh my gosh said all of that said Nashville are still doing good things or good enough things on the soccer field to be in this conversation for playoff teams this season and, and not even at the the fringe level of the Eastern Conference where 10 teams are going to make it into the playoffs. They're, mm-hmm. Right now, I believe they're sitting at the seven spot. They've had a productive season overall, even after missing MLS's back and even after dealing with one thing after another. They've brought in guys, like you just said, Jordan, who are solid and who have played very well this season. Mm-hmm. They brought in that core, that box, I love how you put that, right in front of yeah. goal. And those players have done exactly what they needed to do and been helped by contributions from elsewhere. Right. The one thing I think is important to talk about is when you're building a team and a franchise and an organization, there's really there's a number of ways you can do it. But I think if you're looking at this year and you look at Nashville versus Miami, Miami built it with a little bit more flash, right? A little bit more pizzazz. And they were kind of expecting that from Diego Alonso, a more attacking style of play, which is all awesome. But when you do not structure it with the defensive stability yeah. that you need to have, it uh, it cannot work in Major League Soccer. And I would argue in a lot of leagues throughout the world. And so I just think there is credit that needs to be given to Nashville is it always the like most exciting style of soccer? No, but I think for your first year, it's effective and there are good building blocks to build off of. There's no reason that Nashville can't be Portland, right? Yeah. There's no reason that Nashville can't even be Seattle building forward into the future. Maybe they get more reliable, consistent production out of Mokhtar and he becomes that Number 10, that Ladera or whoever is on the West Coast, that's not going to happen, but you get the idea. Maybe they become a little bit more comfortable when they have the ball building Mm -hmm. forward like Seattle can do at times, like Portland can do at times. But that style, that idea of playing and sitting deep, compressing space, and then moving forward in the right moments, 
is valid. And I think that is a very, very genuinely good attacking strategy for a team to employ. I also love that contrast between Miami and Nashville. Nashville brought in Walker Zimmerman, Romney, some solid fullbacks, <laughs> and then two solid central midfielders in front of them. Right. And Inter-Miami brought in Alvis Powell and Roman Torres, among a few other people. I mean, yeah. that's 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 bad. That's bad if you're Inter-Miami. That's not a, that's not a great comparison for you there. I want to zoom in on this game from this weekend between Nashville and Chicago. I've talked about it before. I like watching the Chicago Fire play soccer. I think they play some of the most aesthetically pleasing soccer in Major League Soccer. Contrasting that style and laying it on top of what Nashville wants to do made it a very interesting game out of this one, I thought at least. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it was an interesting game. I enjoyed watching it and um, I've keyed in on a few different things that I thought and I noticed, but I want to know what you... What the, what the first thing that caught your eye was, Joe? Sure. So I want to keep it Nashville for just a second, and we will branch off into Chicago talk at some point in this analysis. But Nashville play, because of how they defend deeper in their own half most of the time, they play route one soccer sometimes. They mm-hmm. play, yes. I'm going to hit it up from a center back or from a fullback to the number nine or to Derek Jones, who played as a number 10 in this game, and then we're going to go from there. And that's... That's a difficult thing sometimes because we see teams do that. We see teams, and it's a classically English thing. We see teams booted up, booted up front and then hope for the best. And that's mm-hmm. the perception around that tactic, around that offensive plan, is that you're just hitting and hoping. But yeah. Nashville, and, and teams that do it well, Nashville do it a little bit differently. They'll hit the ball up to the number nine or to Daniel Rios as that, or D- Daniel Rios as the number nine or Derek Jones as the number 10 playing off of him in that front two. They'll hit it up there, and the other player, whoever doesn't chest the ball down, is always or almost always running underneath. That gives cover. That gives an option for the number 9 or the number 10 to play the ball to and to to have an option to get out of those tight defensive areas that they're being pressured in by the opposition. So those two players will always be working together, but they're not even alone. It's more than those two guys. In this game, it was Randall Leal and Alex Mule who were running underneath them as well to provide almost four players for Nashville to play off of in the attack once they'd, once they'd hit the ball long up to the number 9 or to the number 10. That idea of having a second ball structure, of having support when you move the ball forward into the attack, is what mm-hmm. takes Route 1 soccer from being a hugely negative, ineffective strategy to being a totally valid and somewhat effective offensive strategy. And I think Nashville do that really well. Well, it brings other players into the mix, not only with those second ball strategy, as you just called it, but then those players, I really keyed in on Leal and what he did in this game because I thought he was one of their best outlets because Chicago was attacking a little bit more on their right side, especially in the first half. Leal was that left-sided winger or that outside midfielder. And in transition, he beat whoever it was to the space uh, right in front of the back line. So what I noticed from him is he's, he's good in that spot, Joe, because he's good with the ball at his feet under pressure. And I say that and I wrote in my notes, he gives the ball away a lot. And that's okay too, because he also, I think for all the times he gives the ball away when he's under pressure in those transition moments, he also does really good things under pressure in those transition moments. And it's important to have somebody that's good under pressure on the ball to be able your, to be your connector because one he, dribbling out of situations in that transition moment can allow other players to run and catch up to the play, right? So then you're adding more players into the attack, but two, it also draws more players into you. So then there has to be somebody else open and he can find that pass pretty well to help Nashville advance up the field. And Leal was the difference maker in this game for a couple of different reasons on Nashville's lone goal. Yes, it's Daniel Rios who scores in the 28th minute, but Leal draws the foul after isolating Mauricio Pineda on the the left side of the field, Chicago's right side. Then Lovitz takes the free kick. Some things happen. It gets over to Leal again, who then plays it to Rios. Who So essentially, Leal grabs the assist, Rios grabs the goal, and Nashville go up one to nothing. Randall Leal is the playmaker when, when Mukhtar's not in the lineup. Leal is mm-hmm. the guy who runs the show. And yes, he's sort of a high-volume turnover guy, but he also is difficult to deal with. We saw Pineda yes. struggle to contain him when he was isolated. We saw Chicago's right-back Sekulic struggle to deal with him as well at times in this game. He's a bright player for Nashville. I don't think he's a number one playmaker kind of guy. But if you can get production out of a number 10 or get another dangerous winger on the opposite side 
or a, maybe a little bit more creativity in central midfield at times, that could be a great complementary player. Leal could be a great complementary attacking player to pair with someone yeah. else. Well, I just want to kind of go off a little bit of what you were just saying is he got he got in 1v1 situations a lot with Pineda, which I think then I want to understand why he as a outside. See, I think in the first half, Nashville is playing more of a 4-2-3-1 and with Jones as a 10. Sure. And then in the second half, they maybe push to that two front. This is just what I saw. And so with Jones as the, at the 10 and um, Rios up top, Rios was occupying uh, Calvo. And then Jones was g- getting attention from the two holding midfielders, Gaston, um, Jimenez, or Madron. So when, when they're in that structure of one in front of the other, he did a good job of coming inside. So then it was Pineda who had to come and step to him to get pressure. And I think that was really smart because then you almost create a numbers overload situation centrally. And Nashville does a really good job of, because of their, their oneness of attacking with numbers at pace centrally down the field. Root oneness is now my favorite adjective in the English language. <laughs> if it's not in Webster's Dictionary, we'll make sure that it gets oh in there very, God. very soon. You're welcome. Yeah, thank You're you welcome. for that. Thank you for that. If you don't mind, I'm going to flip the tables on us over here. We're okay. going to head to the other side of the field, to the Chicago Fire. Almost all I have to say, I do want to talk about their goal because it was a really nice, mm-hmm. intricate piece of attacking play. But that speaks to my, my broader point about them that I've been talking about and I will continue to talk about Chicago is one of the most fun teams in Major League Soccer. Rafael Vicky has players who can pass the ball. He wants to play a passing style of soccer, and that makes for entertaining games. They were entertaining mm-hmm. to watch in this game. They only get one point from this match, even though I think they're largely the better team over the course of this game. They get one point. They still haven't clinched a playoff spot. They're not eliminated because 10 teams make it in, in the Eastern Conference, so they're still in contention, but man... This team can pull teams apart. They can pull defensive blocks apart. They did that to Nashville at times in this game. I want to continue to give credit to Rafael Vicky for what he's doing and what he's already done with the Chicago Fire squad. Yeah, no, I would agree with you. And I think one of the things that I really noticed about Chicago is they're good in transition in a different way because when they were playing Nashville, defensively Nashville is set up in a 4-4-2 block. And those outside players, Emule and Leal, if they didn't get back in transition quick enough, I felt like Chicago did a really good job of playing this this type of pattern of play where they had their front runner Barrich on the as high as he could on the center backs, and then in transition they would actually tuck their outside players, their wingers inside. So then it almost would create a three v two with their attacking player in uh, Aliceta and the two wingers that are tucked in centrally against Godoy and. Um, McCarty, which I think was really smart because then they had the ability to connect. Like you just said, there was a lot of different movements in there in that overload centrally, which then allowed the outside players to get higher up on the field and be isolated on either side. So I really liked that tucked in inverted winger on both side look from Chicago. It's very fluid with how they attack. Yes, their base shape is a 4-2-3-1, but they'll, they'll drop one of the central defensive midfielders back into the back line and play out of a temporary three-back shape. Or they'll bring those wingers in, like you're saying, Jordan. And the purpose of those movements is to pull the defense apart. And that's what they do mm-hmm. on their goal. It's the 42nd minute. It's Sekulic, the right back, who grabs the goal. He's tucked inside. We see that a little bit. So there's another example of the fluidity. The fire are high up the field, and they pull Nashville apart. And they put their players, this is the key for me, They put Nashville's defensive players into impossible situations. Mm. Alistair Johnson is a little bit too deep on the far side of the field because he's worried about what's happening on his side. So he's the right back for Nashville while play is happening on their left side. Daniel Lovitz is drawn out of position ever so slightly to monitor Premyshlav Frankowski. So he's not exactly in the right spot. Then Randall Leal isn't sure if he's supposed to stay with Sekulic, who's making that run into a little pocket of space behind the back line, or at least he's positioned there. There's confusion everywhere. Leal doesn't know what to do. Lovitz is a little bit unsure of what to do. Johnson on the other side is leaving Sekulic onside. So many players are unsure of what the right decision to make is. And if you're Chicago or any other possession team, that's exactly what you want to do. You want to make life difficult, borderline impossible for individual defensive players because that's when mistakes happen. And that's when you can capitalize and score goals. And that's what Chicago did on this goal. Yeah, it was a really nice goal. And Crazy to see Sekulich in that position almost as a front runner. Yeah. Going across the back line. It was a really smart run by him. A great 
ball by Pineda center back getting some love there with the assist right um but those are two defensive players doing the work there and and it's not the goal doesn't come just from those two passes it comes from all the movement that was prior to it and the wingers and the central players being able to change lines and just find where the space is and drag defenders out of the space so they can then attack it. And I think that's exactly what happened. There were defenders in the space that they ended up attacking. But before that, the movement of Frankowski, of Barich, of Aliceta moved players out of that space. So then Sekulic could fi- fi- figure out a way to just wiggle his way on the outside to make that internal run. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Premieres May 2nd on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. That's our analysis from Nashville's 1-1 draw with the Chicago Fire. On to our next game, the big game from Sunday, and that's the Columbus Crew's 2-1 win over the Philadelphia Union. A big win for the Crew. The Union still not clinching the Supporter Shield, but they are on top of the Eastern Conference even after this loss. I feel like this is what we expected from this game. A lot of back and forth, a lot of feeling like it was a playoff game because both teams do a really good job when they are in possession of making it difficult defensively for the opposing squad. I think it's a good transition from what we talked about with Chicago to Philadelphia because I think Philadelphia is one of those squads too who have the fluidity in their attacking movements that man do they make it difficult on the defensive team they are constantly changing lines changing um, not only horizontal lines on the field but vertical lines on the field as well and if your communication isn't spot on all the time it's easy to for them to pick you apart and I just thought that um there were some good defensive moments from the Columbus crew but I I think that Philadelphia there's no question in my mind why they are top of the table I have a totally non-tactical a-tactical anti-tactical question for you Jordan (laughs) it was snowing in this game right that's what I saw in the yeah. broadcast. I have my yeah. – I typically watch games on mute, so I wasn't sure. You know, I'm from Arizona. I don't know exactly what Light snow, snow looks like. Um, yeah. is, it, is it hard <laughs> to play soccer in snow? Because, again, I'm from Arizona. I've never played any sport ever in snow. Yeah. Well, yesterday was um, – it was snowing, but it was, like, very flurry. So it's, like – floating around in the air but it's not really sticking to the ground when the when it sticks to the ground yeah it's it's hard to play soccer in that I think the most difficult part of yesterday's game was actually not the snow and I would prefer it to snow like it was and not have the wind it was pretty windy and there were moments in the game where the ball was just on crosses especially in in the first half I remember uh cross or a, an outlet ball from Philadelphia that just hung up in the air in the middle of the pitch, and then the crew could pounce on the first and second balls. And that was not, you know, Philadelphia is very good at finding their target players and working off of them. But when that outlet ball didn't work, immediately they were like, okay, well, playing the ball in the air isn't going to work. We got to adapt and figure out a way to get the ball to them in a different way. Interesting. Well, you're ready to be a yeah. weather woman if and when that time comes. Or at least you're yeah. able to communicate what snow is like to people who have never Gosh. really experienced it. My resume on MLS is this. I'm a weather woman. I'm an MLS head coach. I, I do it all here. <laughs> we probably made you a GM at some point in time. Who knows? Who knows? It was probably a GM. Yeah, right. yeah. I made Stu Holden, I think, an opposition analyst when he came on the show. So I'm just trying to give people titles and expand their resumes. Yes. That's all it is. We appreciate it. We appreciate it. Um, 
But I think there was some really good, one of the key movements that I saw from the Columbus crew is when Philadelphia would get into their high press, the crew would use their two holding midfielders as a way to draw in um, Philadelphia and break that initial line get of press. Out of so here. the front. That's my one you... big tactical note from this game. Oh my gosh. Okay. You talk about listeners. it. I want to hear how you talk about it because okay. I talk about the crew all the time. So I want to hear what you saw. Okay. Fair enough. I will go first. This is, this is super funny. We don't share notes. So I'm just, that is I'm really funny. Here. So yeah, my big tactical takeaway from this game was exactly what you just said. It was how the crew used their midfield and really their entire buildup structure to manipulate the union's four, four, two diamond press into play out. So the first time I noticed it specifically was in the 12th minute, but it happened over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. I had a couple other specific examples in the second half. I'll probably clip at least one of them and put it on on my Twitter account or on MLS Assist Pod's Twitter because I loved it and I think it was a great piece of play. Let me set the scene here. I already described the diamond press. It's It's a diamond. So there's four in the midfield in a diamond shape and two up front for the Philadelphia Union. The Columbus crew are playing out of a 4-2-3-1. That's their base shape. It was Artur and Darlington Nagby as those two central midfielders in that 4-2-3-1 shape. So when the Union would step high to press, the crew would play calmly out of the back, but not necessarily forward immediately. They would play to one side. So let's say they're playing over to their right side, which is Harrison Offal as the right back, Jonathan Mensa as the right center back. When that happens, the Union would shift, and they would send their, their ball side striker, over to pressure the center back. So that's, let's say that's Santos on Mensa. Then they would send the the left side of the diamond, Montero in this case, up to pressure Awful. So they're man for man in that spot. Then then for the Columbus crew, Darlington Nagby would sneak over to that side to try to provide an outlet. Then Brendan Aronson from the Union would step to Nagby. So they're 3v3 at that point. No mm-hmm. one really has an advantage. If anything, the Union have an advantage because they're suffocating the crew's buildup. But that's not enough for the Columbus crew. They bring over Artur, who's the weak side central midfielder in that illustration. Artur strides over, and there's no one to cover him. The weak side striker for the Union can't drop down, really. It's a little bit awkward of a movement for him, or maybe he's just not aware of that over and over again in this game. The number 10's already dragged over. Aronson can't deal with Artur. He's already moved. Bedoya, it's a little bit too far, I guess, for him to slide over in that illustration. So, essentially, all that happens is once Artur slid over, he's wide open. He's open mm-hmm. in a gigantic pocket of space. And in the 12th minute, Affle played him the ball and the crew played out. It was that pattern over and over again. I was almost waiting for the union to see it and to adjust, but they never did. Caleb Porter won that part of the tactical battle with how he set up his build-up shape to create a 4v3 advantage on the strong mm-hmm. side of midfield. A little tweak to that that I noticed too in the second half is when Darlington Nagby would check to the ball, say it's in the same scenario that you just mentioned, he would check to the ball and Awful would actually play him the ball even though Aronson was on him because he's Darlington Nagby and you can do, play him the ball whenever you want to. And so he, he actually bounce passes it straight back to Awful. So it's just a little like they're playing catch. It goes into Darlington's feet one or two touches, it's back to awful. And then Nagby would just slide into the channel a little bit higher up on the field. That led that left Aronson to decide, do I stay with Nagby and give away the central passing lane that goes a little bit more diagonally up the field? Or do I stay in that passing lane? And most of the time he stayed in that passing lane. And what happened is the same movement. So then it would go into Artur, who's still in that pocket a little bit uh, deeper than where Aronson was. And then they would just one, two around Aronson and he'd be in no man's land. And then Darlington Nagby is dribbling, facing the field from that, receiving that pass from Artur, dribbling up the, the pitch. I thought it was a nice little tweak to what you had mentioned because in the first half, um, Maybe they were just trying to anticipate those changes from the Philadelphia Union. I I saw it more in the second half. And I want to say credit to Columbus, but it's not even credit. It's just the fact that they had an almost entirely first choice 11 in this game. Yeah, what? I can't picture the crew playing out like they did and having their two central midfielders play such a big role if those two midfielders aren't Darlington Nagby and Artur, right? We've talked about Aiden Morris on this show before. He's a promising young player. The same goes for Sebastian Berhalter. But when those two guys are filling in as the number sixes, they're not Nagby. They're not Artur. So having your two first choice, high quality, maybe even borderline best 11 guys with Artur and Darlington Nagby, it's good timing right before the playoffs to get that form back on track, to get your team playing at top gear 
Yes, the Union yeah. are still very good in this game, but the crew get a big win. And I think a lot of that boils down to getting their best guys back on the field. 1000%, Joe. I think that the thing that I've been most impressed with being around the crew is even though this stretch, they were one, three and three in the last seven games before this last weekend's game against Philadelphia and Philly in that time continued to, to their trajectory was up. They were winning games, getting, securing a lot of points, but Philly was with their best 11 until the last game where they didn't have Jose Martinez and Andre Blake was out. And I think that the difference there is the Columbus crew, the last time they had their best 11 with Jassy's artist, Darlington Nagby, Lucas Celereon, and Aloy Room. The last time all four of those players played in the, the first 11 was the last time they played Philly and they won. And so that's almost two months. So the, the fact that that team after two months is still in a place where they're in third in the East without those four players playing together is a pretty good indication about how they built this team and the depth that they built this team on and their ability to adapt their style of play slightly. I wouldn't say style of play, adapt their tactics slightly in order to play with those players that you mentioned centrally that aren't Darlington Nagby and our tour playing together. We've spent a lot of time talking about the Columbus crew, and I think that's for a good reason, because it seems like they're back. It seems like they're back to where... They were earlier this season to where they were in Orlando. They're now capable of pulling out a performance like this. And we're not giving the Union as much love because we just spent time talking about them last week with that 5 nothing demolition of Toronto. So don't worry, Union fans. There will still be plenty of Union discussion going forward as we approach the playoffs. Let's talk goals from this game. The Columbus Crews two goals in this match. They get one in the 37th minute from Artur. They get one at the very end of the game from Christian Namath. Both of these goals don't come from intricate build-up possession play necessarily. They come from either pressuring, counter-pressing in the first goal, or from attacking into space in the second goal. And I love, I love that that's how the crew get these goals. They're versatile. They're able to not only build up and break forward in possession and use the ball to disorganize the opposition, but they're also able to capitalize on turnovers and create turnovers. That's what happened in goal number one. Artur counter-presses a little bit, wins the ball from Montero, finds Awful, who plays it back to him. Artur takes a shot from outside the box and scores. Their second goal, then the crew win the ball in their own half and break forward. So they're using transition moments to create goals. That's what happens on both of these. I love that. I love that the crew can show a little bit more personality and how they score goals and show off different methods to get the ball in the back of the net. Yeah, and it makes it difficult on the team that you're playing if you can score in a variety of ways. And so we've seen the crew build up with 19 pass sequences this season, but we've also seen them play three balls and get the ball in the back of the net and do that really quickly. And I think that's the, a sign of a good team. I think it could be said for Philadelphia too, right? Or the best teams that we talk about. Uh, Toronto does do that really well. Seattle do that really well at times. And so there is this dichotomy in the way that you play that you're not so easily defended because you can only score in one way um it's neat to to see that come to fruition and to see two goals that maybe weren't what you were expecting out of this match to leave this game with one Philadelphia Union note talking about their goal and just how they created chances for a minute the Union won the expected goals battle in this game by a pretty significant margin by I think more than a goal and there's some There are some issues with using expected goals as a single game stat. It's better used over a longer period of time. Generally with data, the more, the larger your sample size is, the better and more accurate of an indicator your stat is going to be. But in this game, the union created chances. They scored this goal. It's Santos drawing a penalty from Jonathan Mensah. Matt Doyle wrote in his uh, weekend review column, his armchair analyst column, that speed kills. And that's what happened here. Santos beats Mensah in the box. He bursts into the box, draws that penalty kick. Montero steps up, scores the penalty. At that point, it's tied one-to-one, and it's anybody's game. The Union are good, and I don't know that we need to go into a lot more detail than that. Yeah. But they do a lot of things really well, and they're going to be a danger during the rest of the season. Oh, yeah. They are very good. And we'll talk a lot about them, I'm sure, in the upcoming weeks. <laughs> I am sure we will. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Jordan, where do you want to go next? We've gone through our two main games from this weekend. We can head anywhere in the Major League Soccer world. Where would you like to turn our attention to? Well, I feel like we should talk about the Colorado Rapids because we haven't got to talk about them much in the last month. Yeah, they're back officially. I mean, they were back last week, and we, we mentioned their name a couple of times, talking about Sporting Kansas City's great performance but a very different game from the Rapids, a very much more comfortable team in this 3-1 win versus the Seattle Sounders. Where do you want to take this? I want to take it to just their ability to be calm under pressure on the ball because I feel like the first goal they scored was one of my favorite goals of the weekend. Yes, and I think this is the one that you tweeted about, right? I did. I tweeted that. And I think it's really special because one of the things that we just talked about two different goals that the Columbus crew scored. And this goal from the Colorado Rapids is totally different from those goals that we just talked about, which I think just shows the intricacy of soccer as a game and how you really can do so many different things to win a game. And so what I liked about the Colorado Rapids is you're playing Seattle, who at times want to, I would say, are probably best when they are in that immediate transition defense and trying to counterpress you and win the ball back. So once they beat that initial press, I thought the Rapids did a good job of just controlling the ball and then trying to stretch Seattle out as much as they could. So on that first goal, it starts down the left side and there's good movement off the ball between Benize and Vines. And what ends up happening is they're they're into the attacking half and the ball goes backwards to Austin Trusty, who as the left side center back is pushed up into the attacking half. From there, Trusty has targets in the box. He has an a, ability to play that ball centrally and continue the pressure that the Rapids have in the attacking half. Or he can keep the ball and try to stretch Seattle out and find some more space. I think it's the right idea for him to keep the ball. So what ends up happening, he plays it to Price, who then plays it back all the way to the opposite side of the field. Now we're on the right side of the field to Keegan Rosenberry, who plays it back to Yarbrough. So they go from being by their 18, attacking 18, all the way back into their own 18 with the ball, which is pretty cool. So from there, Seattle starts being like, okay, well, we want to go win the ball back. They're all the way back here. And Seattle's lines, I don't know if you noticed this, were so wide open. They were stretched, probably 60 yards. And so Colorado then just calmly plays the ball through the lines. A nice little combination. It ends up being a dummy from Jack Price to get the ball centrally to Nomaly. And they go back to the left side, attack down the left side, this time with more space to get in behind. And it creates a good crossing opportunity that ends up getting headed in the back of the net by Andre Shenyashiki. But the thing that is impressive to me, Joe, is sometimes I think as spectators, we just want the, the teams make it into the attacking half and we're like, just go for goal, shoot it. You know, like the soccer mom is like, shoot it, shoot the ball or soccer dad. And um, what I think is important is there is an element of patience in trying to manipulate numbers with the ball. This is exactly manipulating numbers with the ball by the Colorado Rapids and reminds me that the Rapids have the right tools to play good football. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, the way that they can move the ball around is very clean and comfortable when they are clicking, right? When Eunice mm-hmm. Anomaly is getting on the ball in dangerous spaces, when Jack Price has a second to to check his shoulder and then play a very, very slick dummy into midfield. Yeah. I actually don't know how he saw Anomaly that was there. Good. I, I went back and watched it a couple times, and I'm still not exactly sure how that happened. But Unless they, it was just a pattern of play that they understood was going to be true. happening. That's true. Risky, but I love it. Risky. When the Rapids are are taking some risks, when they are confident with the ball, they can do really, really cool things. And I found your tweet, Jordan. You tweeted out, the Rapids just built the ball up, brought it all the way back to their own 18, and then built it back up to score. And I think that's a great summary of what you just walked us through. They went from one end, back to the other end, 
back to the first end again. I mean, this goal for me illustrates the concept of drawing a defense forward and then playing into space in the attack. It's, it's hard to break down a set defense. We talked about that mm-hmm. before. We will talk about it again. It's hard to break down a low defensive block. Just ask Nashville. So why, when you're the offensive team, your job is to get them moving. Get them out of where you want to go. So, so let them come forward. Let them come to you. Have them step forward. Then play into the space behind them. Maurizio Sarri's Napoli team, when he was, when he was coaching Napoli in Serie A, did that so well. They were probably the best team in the world at drawing teams forward and playing out of the pressure and bursting forward into the attack. Make your mm-hmm. own space and exploit that space in the places that you want to go. And the Rapids did that exactly right on this first goal. And I think they did it exactly right because they saw that Seattle was biting at it. Yeah. If Seattle doesn't bite and they don't stretch out the way that they did, that goal doesn't probably happen because then they're still in that block and they just shift back defensively, let you play between your center backs. But it was Rui Diaz who started the pressure and then Roldan joined him. And it was like they thought they could get there. But when you move the ball quickly with purpose you're always going to outplay the people that are trying to run. The ball is going to move faster than the players. Yeah. And so I think that the Rapids did a good job of that. Looking at some of the other goals from this game, the Sounders grabbed the equalizer a little bit later in the first half. Christian Roldan, who's playing as the, the right-sided midfielder in Brian Schmetzer's 4-2-3-1, finds Jordan Morris in the box for a one-touch finish. It's not a super noteworthy goal. But the positioning of Jordan Morris is interesting here for me. He's not out wide. He's not even in the half space. He's drifted in as a central striker almost or playing off of Raul Rui Diaz in that central space in the box. And that's where he receives this ball from Christian Roldan. He finishes in that central area. And I love, Mm -hmm. just as a quick aside, I love Jordan Morris's flexible positioning. He can be wide and isolate 1v1, which is something that Seattle was trying to have him do against Keegan Rosenberry in this game, have him wide left and run at an opposing fullback. Or he can drift into the half space and play either with his back to goal and create a little bit or turn a guy and run forward. Or mm-hmm. he can come all the way central, play almost as a, an auxiliary number nine and get in good goal scoring positions from there. Jordan Morris has been in a little bit of a goal scoring slump recently, but stuff like this reminds me that he is still quite the player in Major League Soccer. Yeah. He honestly is one of my favorite players to watch because of his tactical flexibility. And in that moment, this is this is what distinguishes good players for me from other players is is you have to be able to recognize where the space is in certain moments because of the way that Seattle had the ball and they were all shifted to the right side. There needed to there was going to be a crossing moment and he was in between Abubakar and Rosenberry with this run centrally. So it was like, who's going to mark him? It makes it really difficult for the player to decide who's going to mark him. And it ends up being just that he's wide open. I think it was really smart run and play from him because he's just feeling the game. He's recognizing the space and exploiting it. After things get tied up at 1-1, the Colorado Rapids grab two goals over the rest of this game, going full 2019 Colorado Rapids and capitalizing on set pieces. So the first one, is a Keegan Rosenberry volley in the aftermath of a corner. And the second one, this comes midway later on in the second half. Cole Bassett grabs a header off of a Jack Price free kick. Vintage Colorado Rapids, they're back from their COVID break of sorts, I guess, if you want to call it that. That's probably not mm-hmm. the best term. But the Colorado Rapids are back. They've seemingly adjusted a little bit better to playing soccer games again after their loss last week in a really impressive win that keeps them alive in the playoff hunt in the Western Conference. Yeah. No, I do think I I was very impressed with the mentality of the Rapids in this game because we've seen them go into that situation where they're up a goal and then they get to a draw and the team ties it up and then something goes wrong and it just goes downhill for them. So I think that there was a mentality shift for them not to get too caught up in the game being back in a tie situation that they could continue to do what they were doing in the first 45 and they brought that in the second 45. Um, just two notes on the goals. One, we've talked about that volley so many times, right? It comes to the top of the box to let the ball fall as far as Keegan Rosenberry did. It, it takes the most extreme amount of patience because you have players sprinting at you from the goal. The ball's dropping. You're thinking, I'm going to get nailed. It's probably what a football kicker thinks a lot of the time. And he let it fall almost till it hits the ground, almost where it's on that like 
little half volley, but not quite. And it was a spectacular strike. Um, I just was so impressed. There was a lot of good goals this weekend. That could be one of the goals of the week, but I, I just was so impressed of his patience. And then on the other side, I, something I've been thinking about a lot, and this was before uh, the Rapids had to go through their quarantine period, but they need to sell Cole Bassett. Don't you agree? It seems like it's time. It's He'll, time. He's never going to score as many goals in a season, in a short season, as he has in this season ever again, probably. Yeah, and just with the market right now and potentially teams wanting to get players from America with what we've been seeing, I just feel like he is still young. He's performing well. He's getting a lot of minutes and he's scoring goals. You just, I just feel like that has to be front of the mind. They have to sell him. Yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought a lot about the front office aspect of this game, but it does seem like it's time for Bassett yeah. to move on. I mean, his stock is never going to be higher, I don't think, as it is right now. Yeah, so that's okay. just another thought. I love it. Let's mosey on towards tactical tidbits, one apiece. I'm going to take mine first, if you don't mind, Jordan, if you'll indulge okay, me Okay, let's here. do it. You mine, go, Joe. Mine is all about FC Dallas, who clinched a playoff berth this weekend with a 3 nothing win over the Houston Dynamo FC Dallas are doing something strange with Andres Ricarte. Tom Bogert came on the show and talked about how he was talking with, with people in the know that told him, you're going to like this guy. You're going to like this number 10. We've talked about him before. I think we both like this guy. So Tom's mm-hmm. word rang true, at least on MLS Assist. But the way that Luchi Gonzalez is using him is leaving me a little confused, or at least the way he's using him most of the time. And I want to talk this out with you, Jordan. Okay. Because as I watched FC Dallas's 3-0 win over the Houston Dynamo I saw a 4-2-3-1 most of the time. Yes, it's flexible. Sometimes it looked different. But as a reference point for our discussion, I'm going to call it a 4-2-3-1. Okay. Dallas played in that shape with two holding midfielders. One of them was Thiago Santos, and the other one was Andreas Ricarte. The number 10 in the shape was Jesus Ferreira. I'm wondering, from all that I've seen of Ricarte, it doesn't seem like he's a holding midfielder. It doesn't seem like he should be playing deeper back on the field. Everything that I've seen from him screams play him in the pocket, play him higher up the field, let him go and try to turn the opposing number six and let him combine with Frank Ojeda. And we're just not seeing that as often as I feel like we should for FC Dallas. What am I missing here, Jordan? I would agree with you, but when we've seen him play that spot for Luch Gonzalez, correct? He's played in the 10. Mm -hmm. Yep. When I've watched him play in the 10, he comes back really deep to get the ball. Yeah, it's true. So you want him to play in the pocket, but he's like showing you with his actions that he actually doesn't really want to play there. So I think that it's kind of a, a nice, if you have a, if you have stability in those two players and Ricarte is one of them and Tiago Santos is the other and you count on Santos as that other holding midfielder to really do a lot of the defensive work and hold the space for when Dallas then attack that Santos can hold that space and deny transition moments for the opposing team, then I I don't think that it's a poor decision to put Ricarte there because then he can float in between the lines and almost become an eight, right? So then maybe if you have a more, you know, I don't know if Ferreira is the right choice in that spot, but if you put somebody in the 10 who is aware of how he can connect with Ricarte coming up the field in more of an eight position and more of a link up role. I think it could really work out, but it doesn't sound like that's really how it's working out. I think there's too many coulds and ifs, right? I think, I think maybe. <laughs> how many times did I just say it? Yeah. Well, and, and I'm not even, I'm not even trying to come at you, Jordan. I'm just thinking. No, no, no. I, know. I think, I think maybe this is less of a Luchi Gonzalez problem tactically and maybe more of of Andres Ricarte needing individual instructions to mm. tell him to stop coming so deep. Because yeah. Jesus Ferreira right now playing as that number 10 really isn't providing a lot for FC Dallas. He has not had a very good season in this game. He didn't have a gigantic impact on the attack. So if we if we say, okay, maybe he's not the right guy to play as the number 10, Ricarte is the logical guy to play in that spot. And I think he's very good mm-hmm. when he is higher up the field. He's creative. He drops an absolute dime for Fafa Pico for FC Dallas' second goal in this game. He's good in that space, but every time he drops deep, I think he slows things down. Yeah. I think he takes too many touches on the ball in deeper areas, and that prevents Dallas from moving with the proper pace and speed in attack. So that ends up hurting them. So I think what needs to happen is you need to pair Thiago Santos with a guy like Tanner Tessman if he's the only available healthy number eight option. He can cover a little bit of ground to go with Santos because Houston were blitzing FC Dallas in transition in this game. 
Yeah. Houston were making mincemeat out of a lot of their defensive structure in those transition moments. Santos can't deal with it by himself. He needs a partner. I don't think that partner is Ricarte. I think he should be a little bit higher up the field. But at this point, I'm just theorizing. I'm curious to see what Luchi Gonzalez will, will do. He's not, he's not clueless about this. He knows and he sees how the midfield is functioning. And he's the one who's able to make changes. So as Dallas move forward into the playoffs and, and finish on decision day, before we get to that point, I'm going to keep a keen eye out for how Dallas line up in their midfield. One thing I, I'm curious if they could adapt is when we when I was watching the Rapids, it looked like they were playing in a 4-1-4-1 with Jack Price as that lone holding midfielder. Yeah. And instead of dropping uh, one of the two holding midfielders in between the center backs and building out from a three line and advancing the outside backs, they were only advancing one side. So it was like a three back, but it was Keegan Rosenberry, Abubakar, and... Um, trusty as the three back with pushing vines on. So then you're still getting the work of more advanced players down the field without losing um, a holding midfielder since you only have one. And what if, what if Dallas adapted like that with Santos as that lone holding midfielder or Tessman as that lone holding midfielder? And then they push Ricarte up the field a little bit. And then instead of, using that typical, you know, holding midfielder to drop in the back line, which they like to do, they push numbers forward by just bringing Brian Acosta in and keeping the other three backs stable and have that little bit of a swing of the back line. Just a thought of how you could get Ricarte on the field in more of a 10 position, but with somebody next to him so he can feel... I think he wants that link. Like, he wants to link up and be Mm -hmm. a passer a little bit deeper. So it gives him the flexibility to drop in between the lines of those four and the one to kind of be that link player. And Dallas do shift a little bit like that in the back. They have Ryan Hollingshead tuck a little bit more inside and play out of a temporary three back that way where it's not the midfield mm-hmm. dropping and it's the fullback. But I want right. to see how that evolves and how that positions guys like Ricarte or, or yeah. a guy like Jesus Ferreira, if he's still in the lineup to, to link up or to have a better effect on the attack. So I don't okay. know. I appreciate your FC Dallas thoughts. Those are some of my thoughts. Where do you want yeah, to end us? That was fun to talk through. Yeah. I enjoyed that as well. Where do you want to end us on this one, Jordan? I want to talk about really quick. I was watching, there were so many games that I was like watching halves, yeah. halves of games, yeah. um, like the first 45 of a lot of games. And so I watched, uh, New York Red Bull, New York City FC play. And the thing that I noticed in the first half was New York Red Bulls were playing a very, very high line, high offside trap against one of the best. I feel like transition teams, teams that want to keep the game wide open as possible in City. Did you yeah, notice that? I, don't I know did. If you watched I that did game. notice that. Valentin Castellanos was trying to slip in behind every chance he got. Oh my gosh. And it was right before halftime that really I was like, okay, if if the Red Bulls don't fix this, they're going to, this isn't going to be pretty. <laughs> because right, be, right before half, yeah, five to two. Um, so yeah, it wasn't pretty. And I don't, I didn't watch the second half, so I can't speak to that. But what I saw, and I think that there are, there is a little bit of, uh, thought behind this because if the Red Bull, they, the Red Bulls were pressing high and trying to deny the long ball into Castellanos or deny the the spaces through the midfield where they have good playmakers to build the ball up in ring and Keaton Parks and Maxi Morales, right? So as Red Bulls pressed high, when you're a defender and you're getting pressed like the Red Bulls were pressing you, the the decision is just a lot of the times is a long outlet ball, right? Route one, we talked about it, trying to get it out of pressure and use Castellanos in, as that player who holds the ball up. I also think it works because then you're taking the best player of New York City out of the game. Maxi Morales is trying to be that link-up player and trying to be the player that connects the lines from through the field to gain uh, ground going forward. And so I think that there was good thoughts behind it from the Red Bulls, but there was... At, at, right before halftime, they, they were pressing so high and Castellanos was about... A foot, maybe a foot offside, which is not that much when you're sprinting right at the half field. The New York Red Bulls defenders are two backs in Long and Parker. We're standing on the midfield stripe and Castellanos is sprinting in behind them. And then you're just creating a catch up game, right? Like, can you keep pace with the one forward that we're trying to spring in behind? And there were times where it worked out for the Red Bulls, but there's times that it's not. And I just felt like it was a really... 
tricky game to play and a really risky game. And, you know, I don't know. I didn't get to watch the second half, so I don't know how the rest of the goals were scored. But um, it was risky, that high line. I think the Red Bulls thought to themselves, we're playing in a matchbox. We want to cover as much ground as possible, as high up yeah. the field as possible. True. And it, it's a high-risk, high-reward thing. They they do generate some turnovers. They do create some opportunities for goal-scoring chances in the attacking half. But then things like that Valentin Castellanos run right before halftime happen, and then you run some risks right there. You yes. absolutely run some risks. One thought for me on NYCFC in this game. As you said, Jordan, they do win 5-2. to two. NYCFC aren't doing anything revolutionary. They're playing in a 4-2-3-1 with two mm-hmm. solid midfielders. Alexander Ring has now finally finally moved back into the defensive midfield spot instead of his left wing foray that happened. Yeah, I forgot he played there, to be honest. Too many games. I think that's what Ronnie Dyla wants us to forget about. But we we remember. We know what happened. Right. But we get Alexander Ring back pairing with Keaton Parks at the base of midfield. Maxi Morales is that high-quality number 10 that we talked about last week. Castellanos is a very dangerous number 9 when he is finding space to receive the ball, finding space in the box to finish chances. He grabs a hat trick in this game. They have... I mean, that's even setting aside all of their defensive line. I didn't mention any mm-hmm. of those guys. They have talent to play an effective 4-2-3-1. I think their biggest weaknesses are their wingers. But when Maxi Morales is doing just about everything in the attack, I wonder how big of a deal that is. NYCFC are headed full steam ahead towards the playoffs, and no one is going to want to play them. That's all I wanted yeah. to say. Yeah, they looked good. Okay. They looked good. And we will see the New York Red Bulls there as well. They have already clinched a playoff spot. But we'll talk much more about playoffs and about things that we're expecting to see in the playoffs as decision day nears and as we see the playoffs actually start. Yeah, it's right around the corner. We are so close. Jordan, thank you so much for chatting with me today. I always enjoy talking Major League Soccer tactics with you. Yeah, thanks, Joe. That was a great episode. Thank you guys for listening to subscribe, rate, review. We appreciate it. And thanks for sending us nice tweets and doing nice things to us. Um, I was out to dinner and someone at the bar recognized me and gave me a drink and said, I love what you do with the crew and with MLS Assist. That's kind of nice. That's super cool. I'm so happy. That makes me really happy. Listeners, you guys are awesome. Thank you all for listening. And we will be back next week.